The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Easy dinners, lean, clean cuisine, and fabulous football food. That's what January is all about. Good morning, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. The culinary commentary starts right here and right now. We're so glad that you've joined us. This show brings you fresh ingredients, recipes, kitchen wisdom, too, from celebrity chefs and authors and culinary experts. And if you are just tuning in for the first time or you're a loyal listener after 14 fabulous years on radio, we are delighted to have you as we kick off 2014 in truly delicious style. We love food. We love eating it and looking at it and reading about it and writing about it and photographing it, creating it, sharing it, and especially talking about it right here in your radio. So if you love to cook or love to eat, then please stay tuned because we're really excited about a great hour of radio. We thought we would kick off this morning seeing that we are eating a little bit leaner and cleaner after an indulgent holiday season with the recent release of Google's trendiest diets forecasted for 2014. If you are taking January to a fresh place and it is a fresh start for the year for you, what are you eating? What diet do you follow and how do you better eat lean and clean? Well, Lana, I thought it was so interesting that in Google's release, the top number one diet, not only for 2013, 14, excuse me, but forecasted for uh, 2013, but forecasted for 2014 was the paleo diet. And it is the most Googled diet online from last Mm. year. It's known as the caveman or the hunter gatherer diet. It's based on the idea, of course, of eating what our ancestors would have enjoyed. It's um, all about feasting on meat, vegetables, nuts, and fruits. And it's said and proven, in fact, to allow you to lose excess pounds. But they say the reduced chance of diabetes, heart disease, and cancer is greater than the success of any other diet. Mm -hmm. So interesting, in fact, um, that uh, paleo is still continuing to rise in popularity. I think that Dr. Oz's, which I love, is similar to that. Yes. Because it's a low starch and low sugar diet. Yes. And we're uh, Dr. Oz fans. You love Dr. Yes, Oz. Yes, I do. Yeah. And uh, both of them don't in, don't forget to include a couple of handfuls of nuts every day. Right. Those almonds are very important. And then the cooked brown rice every day for Dr. Oz is important. And the breakfast smoothie, great way to start a day. And I think people are really into juicing now. Well, and that was what I was just going to mention next is, you know, we're a green family. And if your friends and family are wandering around themselves with glasses of green sludge since the new year, then you know they're on the juice cleanse diet, right? I do believe in a smoothie or juicing in the morning. And this celebrity favorite, the juice 
juice cleanse diet actually ranked number two on the Google list. The Mediterranean diet came in third. Um, the ketogenic diet, which is high fat, low carb um, for ketosis, is coming back and gaining um, a little bit of strength once again. The Okinawa diet is one that you should be watchful for. It is um, the people of Okinawa, Japan, that have the highest life expectancy in the world. And so it's their diet that's low in calories, but very high in nutritional value that's being touted as what might possibly be the next big diet fad. Like, like the Mediterranean diet? Yes, but um, it, it is very, very focused on l a little bit of meat and a, a lot more from the sea, like seaweed, um, all the, you know, delicious fresh fish as well. There's a fruitarian diet um, and an omnivore diet being focused on as well in the Google list. So check it out. The 10 most popular diets to follow for 2014 as we kick off an indulgent year. Uh, there's nothing dietetic about my traditional chili recipes. Like I like meat and cheese and toppings and all that good stuff. But I will say that this is chili season. And so Lana and I, mm. this past week, um, we're testing a couple of chili recipes and figuring that we're still experiencing a very cold winter mm -hmm. across the country. There's nothing like a big bowl of chili on a cold winter day. Uh, it feels hearty and cozy. And with the big game coming up, Super Bowl, I mean, how could you have a party without a big pot of chili on the stove, right? It's the time to pull out all the chili recipes and yes. start testing them for the big day. It is. And they can be lean and clean or mm -hmm. they can be full of hearty, unique flavors. And so we thought we would mix it up a little bit and give you a few new ideas to inspire your best chili recipe. So um, what's your plan um, for uh, Super Sundays? Well, I will be making the white chicken chili that I love so much. Yes. And it's a simple ingredients from your pantry. That's what I like. It's, it, you can throw together a chili at any, at any time with a well-stocked pantry. Yes. A couple of cans of blended white beans add instant richness they do, and to the, any chili, really. The key word there, blended. So you can mm -hmm. throw them in whole or a mix of beans, but when you puree them, they give viscosity or depth to the texture of the chili as well. And I think that they do add a really lovely consistency uh, that's combined with the fabulous flavors that you mm -hmm. put together. And my chili is um, very simple to make, and it's just packed with a lot of flavor. With the chicken broth, you could use a shredded cooked chicken breast in it or um, combine uh, chicken and pork, both ground, or separate them. Right, or you could even make shortcut chili, which I like to do in a moment's notice, where mm -hmm. you don't even cook the chicken, by the way. You buy a store-bought rotisserie chicken, and you shred it, and you make your chili base, which, by the way, you could make on any Sunday or any day during the week, for that matter, and you freeze the base of the chili. Maybe it's your simple sofrito saute it's onions, uh, you know, the base of your chili with chili powder, all the spices, the broth. You could even put in the beans. They do freeze well, although I like to put they them do. in. I like to put they them do. in at the end. Mm -hmm. But you can make the base of your chili and freeze it and then thaw it out, put it on the stove, add your shredded chicken. rotisserie chicken last minute. Or ground pork. And you Ground have what chicken. I call shortcut chili. And don't forget to top it with cayenne or pickled jalapenos or Ooh. adobo and Fritos, that crushed handful of Fritos. Yeah, that's I tops it perfectly. I'll never forget. I learned from Emeril Lagasse the Great 
uh, to open a bag of Fritos and ladle in the chili and serve it that way. And if you can get um, the individual bags, that's my favorite thing to do. The bag gets hot when the chili does drip down to the bottom, though. So place the bag in a big coffee mug and then hand everybody, um, all the armchair quarterbacks, Mm. uh, the mug, the bag of Fritos, the top roll down, and then the ladle full of chili. Mm. And you've had it that way, too. I think it's the best way to eat it. It's going to be a good Super Bowl this year. I was actually thinking January lean and clean when we were talking about chili conversation. And so I'm taking a vegetarian approach to my chilies this weekend. And I'm going for um, a chocolate chili that actually has a little bit of Mexican chocolate in it. So the infusion of cinnamon, just slightly sweet for a little bit of that mole influence. Now, if I don't have Mexican chocolate in the house, can I use any chocolate I might have? Preferably bittersweet. It's a great question. And yes, you take... Oh, is that over 70% to you? Uh, It's considered anything over 60% Mm -hmm. by qualification. But if you have a dark chocolate, a bittersweet, even if you had some chocolate chips, you could throw a few in. You know, you take a few... you take a few for yourself and then you throw in a small handful. Well, a handful. Yes. More than three. <laughs> More than three, <laughs> yes. Uh, but the flavor itself, it just sort of, it blends, it melds into the chili. And it's mm. not an ingredient that anyone will be able to pick out. It's that je ne sais quoi. It's that, what is that flavor that's so fabulously addictive? Mm. I have to have more. Um, I'm making a chocolate chili with three different beans, diced tomatoes, lots of good saute with onion and garlic and sweet peppers to start. And it's completely vegetarian. The other recipe that in fact I'm testing today, which I will deliver news on next Sunday is a butternut squash and apple chili Mm. because you know, we love squash. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be a wonderful way to bring bright color. And it's a great compliment to white beans as well with the apple saute in the beginning, adding a little bit of sweetness. So I'll let you know the butternut squash and apple chili on my agenda today well you could almost turn that into a soup oh you sure could that would be divine sounds good doesn't Mm. it yes and then you make a big cornbread waffle and then you ladle the chili over the top (laughs) now when it comes to chili chili makes me think we talk about football and then football makes me think about wings you can't have a football party without wings (laughs) it's like having a birthday party without a birthday cake i agree with you entirely so our think like a chef feature at chefjamie.com which by the way we're always serving up seconds on the web www.chefjamie.com and on facebook and twitter at chef jamie gwen our think like a chef feature which changes weekly hopefully to make you a better cook in your own kitchen is all about chicken wings the crispy skin the dipping sauces the finger licking appeal whether you love buffalo wings or szechuan teriyaki or homemade barbecue we've never met anybody who doesn't love wings and you can fry them or bake them or grill them and you can experiment with an endless array of marinades and sauces and dippers so we've listed everything you need to know about the ultimate wing on the website i love your idea lana is we've been talking about going hotter yes and so this spicy very spicy spicy. everything well it's three ingredients mixed together a cup of honey a half a cup of very spicy hot barbecue sauce and a few tablespoons of apple juice there you go and there are those are the best wings you can make i see a squeeze of sriracha in my future (gasps) there we go i've decided we're going to call everything diablo from now on the devilish heat that you could add to any Mm. signature recipe um that really ignites the flavor in fact sriracha conversation coming up uh in the weeks to come with all the buzz it makes me cry 
I know. <laughs> in a good way. Literally and figuratively speaking. Right? I'm a buffalo wing kind of girl. Mm-hmm. And buffalo wings inspired my weekly dish on the website. It's a buffalo chicken meatball slider, mm. by the way. And it's ground chicken combined with all your favorite flavors made into a buffalo chicken meatball that sits atop a sweet mini Hawaiian roll with a few sp- Uh, sprigs or leaves of peppery arugula and a blue cheese spread Mm. that I hope will be the slider hit of my Super Bowl party. Wow. So it sure will be. I've shared the recipe once again at Mm chefjamie.com. And I love your cook with Lana recipe this week as well. I thought it was a perfect weeknight meal and one that was definitely winter inspired. A one pan penne with shrimp and sun-dried tomatoes. Mm. It's just so easily prepared in this one pan. And I think the key is to add corn. Yes. Well, and wait, corn to the pasta and corn mm-hmm. in your chili. Mm-hmm. You put corn in I all do. of your chili recipes. I do. I love it. I love the flavor. Great addition. Yeah, and great texture too. We're all about flavor and texture and delicious dishes, and we're going to make every day more delicious. You just have to stay tuned. Coming up, Dana Goodyear. She is the author of Anything That Moves, The Making of a New Food Culture, and she's sharing with us what we can expect from the growing world of gastronomy. Plus, Allison Robicelli. She is the the cookbook and cupcake diva. In fact, there are cupcakes at Robicelli's in New York all the rage and she's sharing her secrets for the sweet stuff plus bar harbor foods one of our favorite small family-owned companies out of bar harbor maine has introduced a new product yes seafood lovers you can now get maine lobster juice in a bottle and mike cody is here to dish there's delicious conversation all throughout this hour kitchen wisdom and fresh ingredients so don't touch your dial chef jamie gwen along with lana we'll be right back It's delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine with Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. Well, it's almost always delicious. From one of the most authoritative voices in food journalism today is a book that has recently released receiving critical acclaim and one worthy of great conversation. I happen to love Dana Goodyear's prose, and you know her, of course, um, from her um, many writings in The New Yorker, of course, and multiple other publications. But have you yet read Anything That Moves? It is the book release that she's written about renegade chefs, fearless eaters, and the making of a new American food culture. It is so interesting to me that there is so much tremendous history. I think it's just an extraordinary depiction of food culture. And so we are delighted to be able uh, to share with you Dana's prose and to have finally captured her by telephone to be able to dish on the book. She is Dana Goodyear, New Yorker author and the author of the book with so much praise being received called Anything That Moves. Welcome, Dana. We're glad to have you and Happy New Year. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be on the show. Oh, nice. Thank you. Okay, so Lana and I have read the book. Um, there, there are multiple experiences in it where I had no envy for you at all, but only empathy. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you've eaten some very crazy and fearless things. And I wonder what that experience was like, because I think it takes a a brave soul and a writer to document it. Maybe, but one of the lessons for me of the book actually was 
how things that can sound scary or even gross just because they're unfamiliar, when prepared correctly by a skilled chef or even just using a traditional recipe from a culture that's been working with an ingredient for centuries, can be eye-openingly delicious. So mm. I, I think that our idea of the exotic is really defined by its, our, our own culture. And what's happening now that I see in American eating is that people are really broadening their sense of what's edible, and we're looking to other cultures to inform our sense of edibility and, and looking at some of our own ideas of what makes food and seeing the limitations there. Okay, so maybe you would share with us some of the things that you think are worthy of exploring and tasting as, you know, you watched the notions of what is edible stretched to the nth degree. Uh, what would you consider that we do explore? Well, 80% of the world eats insects, and they really enjoy them. It's yes. not a hardship food. It's a delicacy. It's you know comes out of you know, your grandmother's recipes. And I talked to an entomologist who said to me, if there had been insects the size of pigs in Europe, we would definitely all be eating them. <laughs> so for, for us to think that there's something inherently disgusting about eating an insect is really a cultural bias that I think people are starting to get over. Rene Redepi is serving live ants, actually. And he's such a pace setter for American cuisine, even though he is Nordic. Insects also fit beautifully into this whole idea of foraging the foods you could eat if you were dropped in the woods, sort of survivor-style foods, right. wild. They represent also an opportunity for chefs because we in America, we're a nation of self-inventors and, and experimentation is key in the culinary world and insects are not well explored as an ingredient here. And so I think they present this exciting opportunity for certain chefs. I think it's so interesting, too, that chefs are on the cutting edge. They are the renegades, as you speak about, in looking to explore what is out there. And one of the best chapters I felt, and I'm in agreement, by the way, with the very complimentary New York Times review that you received, written by Dwight Garner, who comments, as you do in the book, on the fact that marinated snark is a dish best served cold. I mean, <laughs> who knew? But there's a wonderful... What is snark? Oh, snark, Dana? Would you, would you give us some detail? Oh, you know what? I think that that's actually sort of a pun on the idea that snarkiness as a kind of <sighs> cultural commentary. Oh, it's a play and, on words. Ah, I looked all through the book for snark, just so you know. <laughs> I think it's a, that's really funny. I mean, in this moment, you never know because right. we're being presented all the time with I was things we've never heard of before. And, and maybe um, Brett could find it because there's a really interesting exactly, commentary yeah. <laughs> in the book where when I say the chefs are renegades, you know, chefs are out foraging. They're looking for new and interesting ingredients, whether it's for the uh, reaction or, you know, the fact that it garners them attention, or if they really have a love for the new insightful flavor or texture of a newfound food. But there is a gentleman who you call a culinary fixer in Las Vegas who searches for a lot of these obscure foodstuffs. And I would love for you, if you would, to talk about him a little bit. Yeah, he was a fantastic character. He got started selling truffles out of his dorm room at boarding school when he was 13 years old and obsessed with food, very entrepreneurial. He is very thorough about his research, and he's that millennial generation of foodie who mm -hmm. grew up in the context 
of Andrew Zimmern and Anthony Bourdain and has never known anything different. That's pop culture to him. And he's very, very ethical in his search for ingredients. Right. Procurement. <laughs> and he is also like a good salesman. He's very much into exposing the fraud of others <laughs> and highlighting the authenticity of his products. And he goes out into the world and finds every little thing. You know, he works sort of on assignment for chefs in Las Vegas. And as we know, Las Vegas has in the past 20 years gone from being a sort of buffet backwater to a culinary capital. And there are Michelin star restaurants there that don't have any other outposts in the United States. Mm -hmm. And he's at the beck and call of these chefs. And or I should say he puts himself at their service. Is Las Vegas serving bugs now? I did not realize that. Jose Andres. Is it called Oreo Melon in Vegas? Yes. Anyway, mm-hmm. Jose Andres restaurant in Vegas has on and off the menu the chapelines, which are the little um, grasshoppers yes. that are uh, common in Mexican cooking. Yes. One of my culinary crushes, Jose Andres. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I'll forgive him for the bugs. But I think it's extraordinary to read your stories and your experiences and the situations that you put yourself in to bring us this progressive information. Because this really is whether you choose to engage in it, whether you choose to taste it, but nonetheless, to at least know about it. That puts us on the cutting edge to share where we stand in the food world. When goat cheese, as you mentioned, was an imported delicacy, Mm -hmm. Dana, to where we are today, is certainly proof that we've come a long way. Leave us with this, if you would, Dana, uh, some predictions as to what we'll be eating in the future, seeing that you know how far we've come as of right now. Uh, I think that, like a lot of people, I see a major revision happening in our ideas of what we should be eating. And the American conception of this 20th century idea, you have your steaks five times a week, and that's a middle-class right, basically, I think is really being overturned. And I think we're going to eat a lot less meat as a nation. I hope we do. That's good. That's (laughs) a wonderful thing. Um, And I think that the meat that we do eat is going to be more of the whole animal variety. I think that people are, the you know, really progressive chefs have been pushing this for a while, the idea that if you're willing to eat a, a hanger steak, you better be willing to eat the cow heart because there's nothing inherently mm-hmm. disgusting about that. And organ meats actually do have a basis. European culture uh, has been working with organ meats forever. So yes. it's it's not such a foreign idea to us. So mm-hmm. I think that the, the likelihood of acceptance among meat eaters is higher. And these are parts of animals that are just going to the pet food industry. And I think there's a higher and better use, which is to feed the omnivorous Americans yes. out there. And that's what we are. So from nose to tail, mm-hmm. uh, as we've talked about many <clears throat> times on this program, mm-hmm. um, and Fergus Henderson's initial breakout exposure. Hugely influential. Hugely. Yeah. Yes. yes. Thank you. As are you hugely influential to where we are today. Um, I thank you personally for bringing us a behind the scenes look at the way we eat. Um, critics say that it is a must read for anyone who cares about what we eat, how we eat, and why. And Andrew Zimmern, as Dana mentioned, was quoted as saying anything that moves accurately describes the remaking of modern food culture in America. And I agree with him, Dana. It's beautiful prose. I love that you offer a softer side in a world of what is a lot of male perspective when it comes to food writing. And so us women stick together. Uh, My mom taught me that. And we thank you. Um, And congratulations on the success of the book. 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. She is Dana Goodyear, and the book is called Anything That Moves, Renegade Chefs, Fearless Eaters, and the Making of a New American Food Culture. You heard it here. There is more fabulous food and delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. The delicious dialogue is right here and right now. Okay, it's the ultimate, this new cookbook. If you're a grown-up, this book is for you. If you love cupcakes, then this book is for you. But I want you to expand your mind because this is the reinvention of the cupcake. No food coloring, no fondant, and no red velvet, as the Robicellis say. The upscale bakery, Robicellis, has become a buzzed-about, in-demand purveyor of decidedly adult cupcakes. And the husband and wife team of Allison and Matt have truly reinvented the cupcake craze for a sophisticated palate, making each a small piece of the greatest cake you might ever have. Well, now their extraordinary recipes are available to home cooks, and it's not only a cookbook, but a memoir, and we are delighted that Allison Robicelli is here and joining us to share their story and their sweets. Congratulations, Allison. The book is killer. Thank you so much. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. Oh, how nice. Thank you. We're very glad to have you. The book captures not only your unique take on baking, but it's very edgy and unapologetic and hilarious as far as its take on life. So if you would, give us sort of a virtual tour of your story. It's a long story, which is why there's a book. And <laughs> it's actually, it only goes up to uh, December 2010 because there's this, we're so jam-packed with adventure over here in Brooklyn. <laughs> But essentially, uh, my husband and I decided to go after the Great American Dream uh, in a few years ago, and we had saved all our money in our 20s and decided to open up the Great American Sandwich and Catering Shop in Brooklyn, in our neighborhood. We had two very young kids at the time. One was six weeks old, one was 18 months old, and we were going to have a nice, normal family business rather than working the line at restaurants every night because we had these insane, insane schedules doing high-end catering and at four-star restaurants and the like. We opened up. It was great. And four days later, was the stock market crash of 2008, and mm. we lost almost everything in a weekend. So essentially, it, it tells the story of how we started making cupcakes actually by accident. We hated cupcakes just more, like, you know, when everybody says, oh, I hate cupcakes. That was us. <laughs> I don't get this. You know, like, cake's supposed to be good, and this is not good. I, I just didn't understand it. But I thought the idea was so good, you know, like having a piece of cake whenever I wanted. I mean, that's, that's a good idea, you know, going out for a cup of coffee and having a piece of cake and hanging out with a friend. So we were like, why don't people just take really good cake and just make it small? I mean, it didn't seem so hard for us. So we started doing that and really thought we'd maybe sell two to four dozen a week tops. It was going to be something to get people into the shop. And uh, within four weeks, we were named uh, one of the best cupcakes in New York City by a food blog. You've been named more since then, in fact, by the readers of Serious Eats, the top three cupcakes by the Village Voice. Every periodical and publication has acknowledged your cupcake passion. And when we started this, we never dreamed that we would have ever been in the New York Times, but we've been mentioned there several times. Yes, and deservedly so. I want to honor as well your husband, uh, because he is a patriot, no doubt. He was a New York fired to Department paramedic before mm-hmm. sustaining an injury in 9-11, and we honor him. Thank you. He was sort of amazing because he was, when 9-11 happened, he got hurt bad enough that he was forced into retirement. 
and he was 20 years old. Mm. So, I mean, picture being 20 and, like, losing your career, and he wasn't sure what to do. And after, like, a year or so of rehab, went to the French Culinary Institute and became a chef. And then him and I, we met at a bar. Mm. And somebody said, you guys are chefs. You should talk. That's a good story. And that's what happened. And it's, it's in the book. He actually came back to my place, and we just stayed up till 10 o'clock in the morning, and we wrote recipes all night, and we read cookbooks together. Wow. And, that's a love uh, affair, if I ever heard one. Yeah. Six weeks later, we realized we were in love and started dating. And then six weeks after that, we got engaged. Oh, and that was nine it. years ago. And you've made buttercream ever since, which might be your greatest legacy. At the beginning of the book, you talk about things you need and what you need to plan for before you bake. And there are a couple of things that stood out to me. If you were to teach us the mastermind recipe behind making a Robicelli's cupcake, it would start with the necessity for good butter and a candy thermometer, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, we use French buttercream, which, I mean, I can't take credit for inventing this. This was this is a very classic recipe, but people just don't use it a lot, which is a shame because it's delicious. You need a stand mixer for it because we're taking sugar up to an astronomical temperature at the softball stage. And if it gets on your skin, I mean, it's going to look like molten lava. So essentially, if it gets on your skin, sugar burns are the worst. You know this. Yes. Anybody in, in food will tell you that a sugar burn is the worst because it sticks to you, and then it hardens, and then it keeps burning you. So it's just a disaster. So when you're working with hot sugar, you really need to be safe. You need to take a lot of precautions. You can't get careless. And a stand mixer is integral because if you're just holding, uh, you're holding a hand mixer, you have no control over that, or you could spatter yourself with it. With it. So, I mean, it's, it's a safety first thing, and it is an advanced technique. But we do give uh, a modified American frosting recipe in the book, which we feel we sort of reduce the sugar up the creaminess. So it's a little bit more classic of what you would, what a home cook would use on a cupcake, but it doesn't taste as saccharine. No, see, and as far as I'm concerned, go the distance, make the French buttercream. Because if you want to master the ultimate cupcake, you're teaching us how and we should follow suit. I was making the Dom DeLuise cupcake first. Now, Dom, may he rest in peace, Allison, we knew. Uh, And an extraordinary gentleman. And I love that your Dom cupcake is inspired by the best of a cannoli. Pistachio cake, cannoli buttercream, miniature chocolate chips, of course, uh, chopped pistachios, and candied orange zest on top. I think I just died and went to heaven. I did not know Dom DeLuise, but he's from my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And we actually went to the same junior high school, albeit 60 years apart. Um, But he he was a big deal because when I grew up, the neighborhood has changed much, but it was still like a lot of first, second, and third generation from uh, Italian immigrants. And Dom was the guy who went to Hollywood, and Dom made it big, and everybody loved Dom DeLuise. So he was sort of, you know, somebody I always looked up to. And then he wrote a book in the 80s called uh, Eat This, It'll Make You Feel Better. That's right. And I remember having that book when I was a kid. And, I mean, the recipes weren't like, you know, four-star cuisine or anything, but he, he wrote all these little stories in between. And I remember just laughing out loud, you know, like he'd tell stories about his grandmother, and she was a lot like my grandmother, and mm. he'd tell stories about, about the neighborhood that we grew up in, and like growing up Italian, so I really related to it. Sure. And that was, I think, one of, it's one of my favorite books that I've ever read, as mm. silly as it is. No, and it sticks with you, doesn't it? Well, and yeah, then... it, was a, it was a big influence on me. Sure. Um, we and... actually created the Dom DeLuise Cupcake, because shortly after we began, accidentally making cupcakes was when he passed away, and mm. it actually, like... You know, a lot of people 
didn't remember Dom, but for us in Bay Ridge, he was a big deal. So I, I, like, I think he would have been very flattered, very yeah. honored, in fact. Can you talk to us about blue cheese buttercream? Because oh, I so got good. to the Iona. It is so good. Okay, the Iona. Um, remember what I said before about my husband and I putting together recipes. So uh, when the store had opened and we lost everything in the stock market crash, we were having you know, a lot of marital problems. I mean, more than anything, the story is, is a lot also about how the reality of owning a small business during the Great Recession. So we were kind of falling apart, and then when the, when the cupcakes happened, suddenly it was like the spark our marriage needed. Because Matt and I are, are at our best when we're really working together as a team, and we would just start staying up all night and blurting out ideas for cupcakes. And, you know, I mean, coming up with lists of, like, dozens in, in 20 minutes. It was insane. Mm. And it felt like we were dating again. It felt like that first night where it's like, oh, this is why I fell in love with you, because you and I, have a, we have the same brain. So we were talking about some of the great desserts we had made at old restaurants. And Matt said, you know, it'd be great. He's like, if we could do something with, like, a composed cheese plate, like that, that perfect thing that you have with, like, a glass of, like, of brandy or something mm, or a glass port. of port wine yes. at the end of the night. And I was like, I'm like, what, like, Stilton and, like, pears? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, and you have, like, a little bit of candied walnuts. And we put together the idea for this, this cupcake, uh, which was going to be a pear olive oil cake with a blue cheese buttercream, port wine oh. reduction, and candy mm. walnuts. Oh. And then we laughed because we're like, no one is ever going to buy that. Like two months later, we had gotten asked to do cupcakes for Pretty in Pink. Um, and we did a lot of very traditional ones. And we're like, what do we do for Iona? I'm like, well, let's do that pear one because it's, like, it's like got a yuppie profile, but, you know, it's sweet and it's kind of weird and edgy. And... We made a dozen. I seriously thought nobody was going to buy these things. We had to go back down to the kitchen, I think, two or three times to keep making them. Like, people mm-hmm. kept trying them. And what was the funny thing was the people who were eating them were people who never ate blue cheese. Like, people I remember coming in every week and saying, I don't like blue cheese. I won't eat it. And they said, well, I trust you. You know, like, you guys don't make anything bad. So if you say blue cheese buttercream is going to be good. I have we'll to try, try it. it, right. You know, and it was just, I mean, it's a small investment. It's only a couple of dollars. So they're like, at the worst that happened, I spent a few dollars on this cupcake. I don't like it. It's not the end of the world. I didn't like lose a fortune over it. And then these people started buying blue cheese. They started mm. buying Stilton or whatnot. They're like, we didn't realize it could taste nutty or creamy or whatever. They just thought it always tasted acrid. And that was, that was the real aha moment for Matt and I. We're like, this is the future of the business. Wow. It's not the sandwiches. It's not the catering. It's like because cupcakes. We'd always dreamed of finding a way to bring high fine, like high-minded dining to blue-collar people, and that was it. That mm. was the aha moment. It was like cupcakes. People will eat cupcakes. Mm-hmm. People yes. will take risks on cupcakes because they're cheap and they're kind of fun to make, and they're just they're so comforting. I mean, as much as you say you don't like cupcakes sometimes, oh, but oh, you do. You have, yeah, exactly. Yes. Oh, you, you do. You have a day where you're sitting down on the couch and just like eating a piece of cake after a bad day. Yeah, you need that. And you need okay. a cupcake. These are cupcakes like you've never experienced before. 50 decidedly grown up versions accompanied by savory and salty and sweet, wonderful stories from the team behind the popular Brooklyn bakery and blog. That's a mouthful, but your cupcakes, an even greater mouthful. Allison, the best cupcakes in New York City, seriously, says Edible Brooklyn. The book, the New York Times says, is laugh out loud funny, and it is the love story with cupcakes called Robicelli's A Love Story with Cupcakes. Allison, a pleasure. Continued love and success and sweet things to you and Matt, always.
Thank you so much for having us. And please come visit us when you're in Brooklyn. Yeah, we can't wait. Thank you. Definitely so. There's more to satiate your appetite right after this. Are you hungry yet? Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. Sharing my outlook on the food world with you, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. This week, we're enlightening you to a new food find. It is as close to fresh off the docks as you can get, in fact. Uh, At Bar Harbor Foods, you can taste the salt in the wind and the clean, cold water, and it's certainly not a flavor that needs improving. They create specialty seafood products the way people on the main coast have for generations. And we love the clam juice and all the fabulous clam lobster and shellfish product that Mike Cody produces. It's really, in fact, a turnaround that this tiny main town is quite known for. And so we'll dish on Bar Harbor, but first we'll welcome Mike Cody to the radio as we enlighten you to Maine lobster juice. Yes, that's right. You're bottling the essence of the sea, Mike, now, and we were so excited to share it with fellow foodies. Yes, that's true. Um, you know, <laughs> jumping off of the success, Jamie, that we had with our clam juice rising to the number two clam juice in the U.S. grocery, we decided to go ahead and do something very unique mm-hmm. and introduce the world to new lobster juice. So much like our clam juice is a very premium, natural, authentic product produced in our factory up in Whiting, Maine, so is our lobster juice. I would love to know what propelled you to put lobster juice in a bottle, and then I thought that we would dish on all of the delicious things that I have made. I will say, since you sent samples of the product and I was beside myself, it really is the flavor of this sweet, wonderful Maine lobster that we all love, bottled and capped. And I think the opportunities for it are endless. Well, you're exactly correct. And really, that is exactly what led us to develop this particular product. Being a cook myself, I really enjoy uh, cooking unique seafood recipes. And it's not easy uh, to go ahead and capture the essence of lobster in the recipe unless you're actually cooking lobster. And, of course, that was before now. Now you're able to go ahead and purchase this product along with our clam juice in supermarkets and add the flavor of lobster in any of the dishes that you're making uh, that uh, use liquid. Okay, so I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Let's talk about what everybody's been making with Bar Harbor Maine lobster juice. I made lobster risotto. Mike, it was outrageous because the flavor of the lobster comes through as if you were to make your own lobster stock from the shells left over from a, a big, huge clam bake feast. I've made tom kakai in the Thai style, the, um, the soup with the coconut milk that usually calls for clam juice was so far more extraordinary using your main lobster juice. Chowders and soups, corn and lobster chowder, using the lobster juice is, I think, a genius substitute to any other broth or stock. What's been on your plate? Well, most recently, just a few days ago, uh, we did a seafood gumbo. Using the clam juice, we used the lobster juice as well. And it really brought forth the sweetness of the main lobster, oh, a flavor for sure. profile that it's known for. But I have to tell you, my favorite so far 
lobster mac and cheese. Oh. Get a couple of mm-hmm. bottles of lobster juice, boil the noodles in the lobster juice. They readily absorb the flavor of the lobster as they're boiling. It's a nice replacement for water, and it really does amplify the flavor profile of those noodles. So oh. uh, all kinds of opportunities to use um, the products to, again, as I said earlier, amplify that flavor of the sea, bring out mm-hmm. that sea flavor in your entree. I love the idea of your lobster clam everything, your crab bisque in a can, I will say, and proudly so, is one of my favorites, Mike. I think it's the beauty of Maine that you've captured, and it's really a wonderful story. And I would love uh, for those of our listeners who don't know to understand better the story of Bar Harbor Foods. What you've done for the local community in what is one of Maine's poorest counties, I know, has been a kind of economic development story that I think happens far um too seldom. seldom. Thank you. <laughs> I think it serves as a great model, but share if you would the story because it's not just about the development of the products. It's really about keeping people working and in your community supporting the industry. Well, that's exactly right. I'm very, very proud to say that uh, we revived this old cannery. Uh, this cannery had fallen on hard times. It started as a family business back in 1917. And going on 11 years ago, I purchased the assets of the business. We had a few original employees that were still employed, and we decided to go ahead and thrive and survive Mm -hmm. rather than to go with our predecessors in the industry. Some 43 canneries on the main coast are no longer, and we're the only seafood packer left in a shelf-stable format on the main coast. So the long and the short, uh, we were able to go ahead and get people interested in helping us revive this old cannery. We had some great folks and talent pool from the generations previous who had worked in canneries. And uh, we were able to go ahead and redo our recipes such that uh, everything became all natural. And our mantra is to use only sustainable seafood sources throughout. And we are blessed in the state of Maine on the seacoast on Holmes Bay to have uh, an abundant supply of such. So we decided to go ahead and put people back to work, and we now hail a total of 30 employees. We really uh, have contributed nicely to the local economy in many aspects. Well, it's certainly well, a testament to congratulations you. Congratulations to you. Yes, and thank you. I thought it was a beautiful article, by the way, written in the National Journal about how clam juice and lobster bisque turned around a tiny main town. <laughs> and, well, thank um, you. Uh, yes, and as Lana said, congratulations <laughs> to you. I, I think it really is a, a wonderful food story. And with every new product that you and Cynthia and your team develop, we are here to support you. We are great fans. And we believe in and support small business. We believe in glorious quality and full, fabulous flavor. And you always deliver that. Well, I, I can't thank <laughs> both of you enough because you have been avid supporters for some time now. Yeah. You know, it really gives me some impetus to challenge myself to continue to develop some really great products for me to share with you. Yeah. We love it. It is pure, all-natural, and certified Maine Lobster Juice. Yes, you heard me right. Maine Lobster Juice in a bottle. It doesn't get any better than that. We'd love to know what you're making. You can always email us live at chefjamie.com. Go to their website, find recipe inspiration, and lots of insight and uh, contents on their products at barharborfoods.com. And do add it to your Bloody Mary. (gasps) Oh! 
If you come up with a great new recipe idea for Bar Harbor Foods' new Maine lobster juice, Mike wants to know. Let us know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I love that we always get delicious feedback. We love your emails. We love your input. And we do want to know what you're making. We actually received a couple of emails this past week, and we thought um, that we would answer them live on the air. We thank you, Marissa, uh, for sending us a sweet request, in fact. We had been talking about popcorn and um, its extraordinary popularity at the end of the year. And Marissa is looking to make her own signature popcorn party mix for Super Bowl, for the big game. So um, we have a caramel corn party mix that I am posting at chefjamie.com for you, Marissa. But it's all about starting with popped popcorn. And then I like the bite size um, wheat cereal, the sweet little, you know, wheat squares, along with pretzels, pecans, and then a sugary, delicious coating of brown sugar and butter and a little bit of corn syrup. Um, you need baking soda to keep the mixture um, actually stabilized mm. along with a little bit of vanilla. And then the secret twist to a great popcorn party mix, in my opinion, is just a teeny pinch of cayenne. Now, if you like it hot, you can increase it and you could do a sweet and spicy, but there's something about a teeny bit of the backbite to offset the sweet that makes this party mix, I think, quite spectacular. Mm. And you're a popcorn aficionado. Well, Lana, I always so love to add the mini... Uh peanut butter chips or chocolate chips to it or butterscotch chips or right. M&Ms Ooh, you could add just about anything mm -hmm. to a popcorn party mix it's a great mm. way to clean out the pantry from the um, candy cupboard as well so uh, Marissa we will post it at chefjamie.com and we'll email the popcorn party mix recipe mm -hmm. to you as well then Mark wrote to me um, just yesterday in fact and I thought it was such a good question we wanted um, to lend some support and give some advice and in fact Mark I hope you'll continue to listen because come Coming up in the weeks to come, we're talking a lot more about gluten-free cooking. But Mark posed a question. He wrote to me directly, Jamie at chefjamie.com. You can use Lana at chefjamie.com and always live, L-I-V-E, at chefjamie.com. He is eating gluten-free and challenged by dining out. And he asked if there was any particular cuisine that he should consider when it comes to dining out in gluten-free style. And Mark, I hope you'll be very pleased to know that Mexican food is a very good choice. I think lots of guys especially love hearty Mexican food. And so if it's your style, I will say it's the corn tortilla chips or the corn tortillas, the masa, um, even in the Italian style polenta that will make it very easy for you to eat gluten-free style. Stay away from the flour tortillas or the flour tortilla chips. But if you stick with the corn, you're safe and you've got lots of good beans and spicy salsa and shredded cheese and, you know, good lettuces and cilantro that go on the tacos and you should be in the clear. So um, we certainly appreciate you writing to us. We've gotten great feedback as well from our new feature as we kicked off in 2014, a feature all about our favorite websites, blogs, and apps. We're trying to bring you the best food finds and we believe in the growing technology when it comes to the food world. So we'll consider this our last bite for the hour we will bring you Lana's and my newest food finds 
online in the form of a website, blog, or app. This is our best new culinary discovery. Lana, what you got? Oh, and I love smittenkitchen.com. A website that is just full of culinary inspiration, Mm -hmm. is it not? I love it too. Most definitely. With comfort food, just brought up a notch or two. Brilliant. I love the recipes as well. Mine is a website this week at topwithcinnamon.com. I'm very impressed to tell you that this was one of the best food blog finalists uh, from Savour Magazine, the awards last year, 2013. Mm. She's 17 years old, this blogger, based in London. She's quite a cook. And I was immensely inspired by her salted caramel-filled molten chocolate cakes. Oh, what a nice change. Isn't that smart? You take your favorite molten chocolate cake recipe and you put salted caramel or store-bought caramels and an extra pinch of salt in the center. And when they bake and then break, you get that absolute volcano of oozing salted Mm. caramel within the chocolate. How good is that, right? The Delicious Conversation is right here in your radio every Sunday, and it continues next Sunday when we hope you'll join us as we dish on vodka with the modernist, I will say, and the best mixologist we know, Tony Abu Ghanem, plus Chef Rick Bayless, and we're talking about the satisfaction of sriracha. If you can get some, it is the best heat And we'll dish on where you can find a better bottle. So stay tuned. There's more delicious conversation in your radio coming up next Sunday. And until then, at ChefJamie.com. We thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off along with Lana. We hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. (laughs) 